0: Fellowship room uh, just to my left. And I think that makes this an interesting Sunday because I've always thought to myself, how many people out there would prefer to get a shot rather than listen to me preach? So if you're one of those people who said, I'd rather get a shot than sit through a sermon, well, put your money where your mouth is. 11 o'clock, go out there and get a shot. In all seriousness, as we wrap up our sermon series on money this morning, We are seeking some good, healthy conclusions in light of everything we've discussed so far. We've talked about how lots of good things can come from Christians having wealth. However, there are certainly bad things that can come as well. Last week, we saw several ugly examples of that. The Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Ahab and Jezebel's greed for Naboth's vineyard. Solomon's abandoning God as he acquired more wealth and more power. And the rich young man rejecting Jesus to his face because he had great possessions. Instead of following Christ, he walked away in sorrow. Now, as we put all these things together, the good, the bad and the ugly, it's safe to say that in order to embrace the good of wealth, reject the bad of wealth and avoid becoming an ugly example like the ones we just mentioned, Well, we need a good understanding of the S word. And the S word, of course, is stewardship. Stewardship is the answer to this problem, isn't it? That's it. Go home. You can leave. Just be good stewards. End of sermon, right? Well, I'm sure you've heard sermons on stewardship before, maybe even from lots of different angles. In the words of theologian Walter Brueggemann, we must learn to practice respect and restraint, When it comes to our finances. okay, that's stewardship. We've been told to view our wealth as kingdom resources. We've been told to use our blessings to bless others. We've heard quotes like those from John Wesley. Earn all you can, save all you can and give all you can. That sounds like good stewardship. Quotes from Charles Spurgeon like it is bad to see our money become a runaway servant and leave us. But it would be worse to have it stop with us and become our master. Again, sounds like good stewardship. Now, all the quotes, all the advice all the guilt trips, all the stories of both success and failure, the positive and negative examples, all those things can be good. They can be valuable. They might be helpful as we try to be good stewards of our finances. But let's be honest. When the rubber hits the road, stewardship is simply difficult. And no matter how many quotes we hear, no matter how many sermons we hear, no matter how many pieces of advice we hear, stewardship doesn't always get any easier. So this morning, I'd like to try something a little bit different. I'd like to present to you five big ideas, five big statements from everything that we've read and discussed so far. But also some passages of scripture that we haven't discussed. And I believe all five of these ideas, which you can see in your bulletin insert, are true. All of them are true. I pray that you believe them this morning. And I pray that if you don't believe them, you'll at least consider them this morning. Because here's my theory behind these five statements. If we believe these five things are true then this difficult discipline of stewardship might start to make a little more sense to us and may even become a little bit easier to practice. So let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours and take that Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read from 1 Timothy, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for your word that we have the privilege of opening and reading. Thank you that I have the privilege of preaching your word. I pray that you would be with us here this morning as we hear from your word. Give us open hearts and open minds and open ears. I pray that your spirit would be moving and active to do whatever it is that he needs to do in our individual hearts. Some of us come in here needing to be encouraged. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us come in here... Relatively clueless about who you even are. And so, Father, thank you for your word that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who we just remembered at communion, who offered his body as a sacrifice for us. That because of that sacrifice, because of his voluntary sacrifice, that we can be in relationship with you. That as Terry mentioned, when... Things around us seem to be falling apart when the headlines are bad, when there's no light at the end of the tunnel. We look up to you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. I pray that the things that we do, not only as individual Christians, but as a church together would be honoring and glorifying to you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, big idea number one. When it comes to money, the church's example matters. Now, what I mean by that is this. If we as individual Christians seek to honor God through how we use our wealth, how we use our possessions, then we need churches to take the lead. We need churches to show us how to be good stewards. I thoroughly believe that God's primary tool for accomplishing his mission in the world Is the church. It's the church's job to preach the gospel clearly and consistently. It's the church's job to raise up disciples of those who have responded to the gospel. It's the church's job to give a broken world, even just the tiniest glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. And it is the church's job to model good stewardship for believers. So how does the church do that? Well, a few ideas. Number one, the church can do that through its leadership. You opened up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. In that passage, Paul talks about how leaders in the church must not be lovers of money. He says something similar in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, that he should not be greedy. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. That a leader should not be leading for the sake of shameful gain. The point is that in all three of the New Testament's most significant passages about church leadership, in all three of them, the way the leader handles money is specifically mentioned. Does he worship his money? Is this leader greedy for more of it? That question clearly mattered to Paul, and it clearly mattered to Peter, and it should matter to us as well. For Paul and Peter, they made these lists saying, you know what? When you're looking to find leaders in your church, appoint leaders in your congregation, look for guys like this. It mattered to them, and it should matter to us as well. Because if the church is going to model good stewardship, we need leaders who model good stewardship as well. But it's not just leadership. Let's look at the integrity of the church as a whole. In the same way that an individual leader should handle his money in godly ways, so should the local church. This includes how a church spends its money, how a church invests its money, saves its money, budgets its money. Doing all these things in a way that is honest, transparent, and accountable to the congregation. And above reproach to those outside of the congregation. Because when an individual church doesn't handle its finances with integrity, it makes the larger collective church, the body of Christ, look bad. And when a church collapses because of financial scandal. It doesn't just bring shame to the cause of Christ. It doesn't just hurt the people of that church who are most closely affected. It also gives ammo to those who assume the worst about every church. Our leadership matters and our integrity matters as a church when it comes to stewardship. Another suggestion. The church must refuse to show partiality, refuse to show favoritism. James talks about this in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, eh, you stand over there. Or, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Maybe you've seen it before. You've seen churches that cater to the wealthy only to neglect those who have less. Churches can even be tempted to sacrifice sound teaching, to sacrifice sound practice for the sake of appeasing those who pay the bills. There are churches out there that sacrifice their mission for the sake of keeping the big givers, the good old boys network, happy. We mentioned leadership a few minutes ago. This favoritism can get really bad when churches stop appointing leaders because of their godliness, but instead start appointing leaders because of how successful they've been in the eyes of the world or because of how much money they've given. It is a temptation that churches like ours must resist. And one more thought. Churches themselves must learn to practice generosity. If generosity is going to be a mark of our lives as disciples, we need a church that models it for us. That includes things like supporting missions locally, nationally and globally. Missions to people that we will never meet missions that offers us no real return on investment, and yet we give anyway. That includes caring for the poor in our community, even if it's a thankless job. Look at First John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, But indeed, and in truth, when a church fails to practice generosity to others, that church shouldn't be surprised when its members aren't generous either. Now, this generosity isn't just for the sake of doing the right thing. It's not for the sake of just trying to be good people. This is so that we can embody the love of Christ. This is for the sake of our gospel credibility. There's an old song by Johnny Cash where he talks about a man who, after a long, hard life of great sin, great wickedness, hits rock bottom and finally decides to come to Christ. But he has a few questions before he gives his soul to Jesus. The song is called If I Give My Soul, and a couple of the lyrics go like this. The man asks, if I give my soul to Jesus will he clean these clothes I'm wearing? If I give my soul to Jesus, will he put new boots on my feet? The idea behind that is this. We as a church can't expect people to listen to us about their spiritual needs if we don't care about their physical needs. If we don't care about their material needs. One of the questions we must ask as a church Before we talk about how important faith in Christ is. We must ask, well, does this person need new clothes? Does this person need new boots? Does this person need a roof over their heads? Does this person need food in their stomachs? Because if we don't care about those things, then why would that person listen to us when we talk about the importance of Christ? Why would that person believe us? When we say the love of Christ is so important. Do we believe the church matters when it comes to stewardship? Are you part of a church that values stewardship? Because if we believe that, and if we as a church put that into practice, stewardship may make more sense to us and may even become a little bit easier. That's idea number one. Idea number two. Wealth and possessions have severe limitations. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. James says something similar in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He describes riches as rotting, moth-eaten, rusted, and corroded. The idea is that wealth and possessions are so severely limited because they are so easily lost. It is so easy to make a bad investment, no matter how much research you do. A catastrophic event can sap your resources overnight, no matter how much planning you've put in. Our wealth and our possessions can be stolen from us, just like that. And even if we don't lose it in those ways, it's limited in the sense that it really can't bring us joy in the big scheme of things. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that, that once he's acquired wealth, all the wealth you can imagine, he steps back and says, you know what? It's all vanity. It's all chasing after wind. It's severely limited. The past few weeks, we've mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at what we see in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. In the words of theologian George Strait, I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. I mentioned George Strait because my mom is here this morning. She loves George Strait. My dad's here too, but I couldn't find any good theological observations from Leonard Skynyrd. So... So the question is, do we recognize the passing nature of worldly wealth and possessions? The severe limitations of wealth and possessions. Because if we do recognize how limited they are, it may be a little bit easier to part with it. And stewardship and generosity may just come a little bit easier for us as well. Big idea number three. Contentment is a mark of a disciple of Jesus. Look at Job chapter 1 verse 21. Job says there, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even after Job has lost everything through no fault of his own. He's lost wealth, family, power, influence, health, everything you can imagine. Even as Job knows that his insurance premiums are about to skyrocket, Job knows that he still has God. He still has God. And even then, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his pain, Job says that God is still worthy of his praise. Now, contentment does not mean pretending everything is perfect. Job doesn't do that. Job does want answers. Job does cry out and complain to God. That's true. But contentment is understanding that a lack of wealth and a lack of possessions is not the worst fate that we could ever face. A lack of God's presence would be far, far worse. Jesus hits on this in the Lord's Prayer. Verse 11 of Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. No more, no less. That's contentment. Theologian Craig Blomberg says of the Lord's Prayer, we should ask God to meet our needs, not our greeds. That's contentment. Paul understood contentment. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. We read there. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me that you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As Paul sits in a prison cell, for all he knows, potentially facing the end of his life, Paul writes his most joyful letter to the Philippians. How? How could he possibly be so joyful sitting in that prison cell? It's because Paul has learned to be content in Christ. The question is, do we find our contentment in Christ rather than our worldly wealth and worldly possessions? Because if we find our contentment in Christ, stewardship and generosity, they might become a little bit easier. But it's easy to see that if we find our contentment in our money and we find our contentment in our stuff, it's not surprising that we would hold on to it just a little bit tighter. Big idea number four, maybe the most important one, if there's one you leave with, it's number four. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the most generous act in all of history. Jesus's death on the cross was the most generous act in all of history. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are generous because God has been so generous to us. In fact, he's been far more generous to us than we could ever even attempt to be to other people around us. So we can forget any idea of paying God back. That's not what it's about. God was generous in that he didn't give up silver or gold for you. God willingly gave up his son. And Jesus didn't give up silver or gold for you. He willingly gave up himself. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Though Christ was rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. Paul's not talking about Christ being rich in terms of silver or gold. He's talking about Christ being rich in the presence of his father. Sitting at his father's right hand, constantly being worshipped by the angels. And yet Christ puts on flesh. Christ comes to humanity, fully God and fully human. And submits himself to death, even death on a cross. Dying like a poor, rejected criminal. So how could Paul be content sitting in that jail cell in Philippi? And how can we possibly be content in a world that tells us we never have enough? We constantly need more. Well, we can be content by reminding ourselves of this reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the most generous act in all of history. And if we really believe that, it may be a little bit easier to part with our wealth. Stewardship may become a little bit easier for us. Finally, big idea number five. The future reward awaiting Christians in eternity far outweighs... Any wealth and any possessions that we can acquire now. We mentioned Matthew chapter six, verse 19, where Jesus talks about moth and rust destroying our wealth and our possessions. Well, he continues in verses 20 and 21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God offers something far better than anything that we can lay our eyes on in this life. Because God offers an inheritance. God offers a reward that cannot be destroyed. That will never fade. That never becomes outdated. Will never be eaten by moths. Cannot be stolen and will never rust or corrode. Because that gift is himself. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we can have God himself. We can be in his presence for all of eternity. We have the privilege of serving the greatest master. We can be workers in the greatest kingdom. Sons and daughters of the creators of the universe. Bearers of the Holy Spirit. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul knew a thing or two about suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul can stand losing anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. Losing his earthly treasures. Not just because he's content with Christ right now but because Paul knows the joy and the glory that he has to look forward to. The second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Christ became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. That people like us could become rich in the things that matter. Rich in the things that last. Rich in the things that will not be stolen, will not rust, and will not be moth-eaten. That we can be rich in the things of eternity. Now, those are five big ideas. A lot of scripture to go along with them. And I know it can be a lot to take in in one sitting. But there's a logical sequence, at least to me, that connects these five ideas together. So let's walk through them one by one. Big idea number one, the church models stewardship and generosity because the church's example matters. That leads into idea number two. Part of what the church does is teaches us and shows us the severe limitations of wealth and possessions in the big scheme of eternity. That leads into idea number three. When we recognize these limitations, we find ourselves content with less. Because we're content in Christ and we find that contentment not just because of the severe limitations of wealth and possessions, but because we have Christ, the most generous gift that God has ever given us. That's idea number four and leading into idea number five, because we have Christ. We focus less on the temporary treasures of this life, the ones that can fade away. And more on the future reward that awaits us. If we believe all five of these things, which I hope we all do because they aren't exactly controversial for a Christian. What comes as a result? Well, I think the answer to our relationship with money comes as a result. The S word. Stewardship. We don't practice stewardship because it's nice, moral, or tasteful. We don't practice stewardship to pay God back because we could never do that no matter how hard we try. We don't practice stewardship so that people will be in awe of how holy we are. We don't do it to impress God, impress ourselves or impress anyone else. We practice stewardship because we believe these things are true. We believe these things about God. We believe these things about Christ. We believe these things about ourselves. And we believe these things about our world. So I pray that we would view stewardship not simply as a duty, not simply as a responsibility, but as a privilege. I pray that as the Holy Spirit continues to shape us day by day, little by little, as the word of God seeps into our hearts and into our minds, that stewardship would flow out of us. And I pray that as we consider how generous God has been to us, that we would be generous to others. I pray that we would focus less on earthly treasures and more on heavenly treasures that will not fade, that will not rust, that will not corrode. But that we would be generous with the things that don't last and that we would more deeply treasure the things that do in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your generosity. Maybe every single one of us in this room has been guilty of praying for more money or praying for more stuff and There's nothing wrong with wanting our needs met. There's nothing wrong with asking for our daily bread. You taught us to ask for our daily bread. But maybe we've been guilty of asking for things that really we shouldn't be asking for. We've been asking for earthly treasures instead of focusing on eternal treasures that you've already been so generous with. So, Father, I pray that as we wrap things up on this discussion of finances and wealth and stewardship and generosity, all this stuff that maybe isn't the most romantic thing in the world, but it's also so important. I pray that we would focus less on earthly treasures and that we would focus so much more on eternal treasures. That includes your son, who you gave to us on the cross his body broken, his blood shed. God, we are so thankful for that gift. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who shapes us and forms us, who grows us in not only our faith, but also in our love, in our generosity, and grows us to look more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in our words and in our deeds. We thank you for your word, so grateful that we have the privilege of reading who you are, that you want to be known by us. And we thank you for your church, that we have the privilege of coming together and calling each other brother and sister, because you are our one Father, no matter how different we might be. So Father, I pray that we would focus on those eternal, heavenly treasures, and that we would look forward to the reward that you have for us. Because nothing this world offers can even compare, doesn't even belong in the same sentence, as the reward that awaits us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son who died for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to pray with you.